This is Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien as she examines America's most infamous true crime cases through the lens of the court, not the court of public opinion. This show will bring you the facts as they were established in the courts and the basis for the decisions of the appeals courts. Here's your host, Lisa O'Brien. In episode 17, Kyle and I look at the case against Richard Stephen Fairchild, who was convicted and sentenced to death for the November 14, 1993 murder of his girlfriend's three-year-old son, Adam Scott Broomhall. In a drunken rage, Fairchild burned Adam, beat him, and threw him into a table, inflicting a fatal head injury. While advocates for Fairchild have never claimed that he's actually innocent, they have challenged the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals holding that child abuse murder is a crime of general intent and have challenged Fairchild's culpability due to his alcohol and drug use and organic brain damage caused by multiple head injuries sustained during falls, fights, and amateur boxing. And we're going to talk about the course of the legal proceedings uh, involving Fairchild and the facts of the case. And good afternoon, Kyle. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, Lisa. Good afternoon. Another really tough case. Yes, it is. These, um, these are hard. Yes. And part of it is that I, I, I tend to take these more personally than um, others. And so when I see a press conference calling this death an accident, I get really angry. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. (laughs) So um, the, uh, the victim in this case is Adam Scott Broomhall. He was born August 13th, 1990. So he would have turned 32 this year, not 23, as erroneously stated in Fairchild's clemency petition. Uh, He was born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. His parents were Stephen Broomhall and Stacy Broomhall. He had two sisters, Lacey and Jennifer, and uh, his injuries were burns, multiple blunt force trauma injuries, and blunt force trauma to the head. Um, and I don't know how anybody could old. even say that was an accident with a straight face. Mm-mm. No. Um, and he was only three years old. He weighed 24 pounds. Uh, Richard Stephen Fairchild, our perpetrator, uh, was born November 17, 1959. Uh, he may have been born in Texas. Uh, it's not really clear where he was born. Uh, he did spend some time in Texas. His parents were Kenneth Fairchild, an Army veteran, and Emma Dretcher Fairchild, who was born in Switzerland in 1931 and died in 1975 or thereabouts. Um, Emma had three children with service members, because this was during World War II or shortly thereafter, 
And then she met Fairchild and married him and had four more children with him. Um, so Fairchild is the sixth of seven children. He has two stepbrothers, one stepsister, one sister, and two or three brothers. Two brothers. My mistake. Um, he did not, uh, he completed ninth grade and didn't go any farther in school. He did join the Marines on, in, on June 17, 1977 at Amarillo, Texas. However, he did not complete the 10th grade, which is a requirement for enlistment. He was discharged because of that on August 3rd, 1978. Uh, this is my speculation entirely, but Fairchild was facing two UA charges, absent without leave or unauthorized absence charges. One from February 16th, 1978 to March 10th, 1978. And the second one from March 31st, 78 to April 27, 78. He was facing a potential court martial. Personally, it's my speculation. He decided to rat out the recruiter who put him in the Marines in spite of his lack of 10th grade education and took no responsibility for this. He blamed it entirely on the recruiter. He said the recruiter made him lie because he wanted to be a Marine so bad. Well, this will be important, right, when you get down to his his mental acuity. Well, it shows that even at this age, he's pretty clever. He's thinking yeah. about how to, you know, how to use the recruiter yeah. to to rat him out to get out of his court martial. Correct. And and he he gets himself out of the Marines. And maybe the Marines weren't for him. He certainly was not having an easy time. There were apparently a couple of incidents where um, he was physically assaulted. Uh, although something tells me because he was a little guy that he probably had a Napoleon complex. Right. And so he was like one of those big dogs trapped in little dog bodies and that he probably picked his share of fights and then came out on the shitty end of the stick. Um, he also had taken up amateur boxing as a, uh, an adolescent. Um, so uh, there, there's that leads now to an allegation that he had multiple head injuries, but we'll get into that later. So uh, emotionally, mentally, he has uh, he began abusing alcohol and drugs at about age 15. There's a claim that his parents or his father uh, introduced him to alcohol and drugs. Uh, he did have an abusive childhood. His mother was abusive. His father was abusive. They probably didn't have a lot of money. There was substance abuse again. So uh, he didn't have a perfect childhood in the suburbs. Um, he allegedly self suffered multi multiple head injuries uh, as a result of amateur boxing and or fighting. And he did have a 30-day inpatient addiction treatment uh, admission in 1992 at the urging of one of his brothers, but I don't think he completed that treatment and he, and he was homeless for a period of time. Apparently when he wasn't drinking, he was a hard worker. 
he did a good job. But when he started drinking, he became belligerent, he became violent, he became angry, and he lost jobs and couldn't hold down a job. Uh, his prior crimes include the two unauthorized absence charges in the Marines, which were never, the Marines did not prosecute. And then he had apparently a theft card, a theft charge. And again, the victim in this case was Adam Scott Broomhall, three years old, 24 pounds. Uh, the crime occurred on November 14, 1993 in Dell City, Oklahoma, which is in Oklahoma County. Adam Broomhall was a three-year-old, 24-pound boy living with his mother and sisters, Lacey and Jennifer, in Dell City, Oklahoma. During the summer of 1993, his mother met and quickly moved in with Richard Stephen Fairchild. Like Fairchild, Stacy had issues with drugs and alcohol. Fairchild was reportedly a good provider for Stacy and her children, and has claimed that he loves Stacy's children as though they were his own. When he drank and used drugs, however, Fairchild became angry, aggressive, and violent. On November 13, 1993, the couple spent the day drinking and using drugs. Fairchild admitted that he'd been on a bender for two days. They went to Stacy's parents' house and continued drinking and using drugs into the night. When the party ended, Stacy's sister Charity had to drive the couple home because neither Fairchild nor Stacy could do so. Stacy was so drunk she was incoherent. Mm. Once at home, Charity put the children to bed. Stacy had passed out because she was so drunk, and Charity had intended to spend the night to care for the kids, but Fairchild attempted to kiss her. I've seen oh. alternate claims of making a pass at her, and I've seen other claims that it was actually a sexual assault or an attempted sexual assault. Um, and she decided not to stay. She called a cab. Fairchild became aggressive and threatening, vowing to beat up the person who came to pick Charity up if he oh. wasn't in a taxi. It's none of his fucking business who picks her up. Yeah, he just sounds like but a real winner. But this is who we're dealing with. Uh, you know, and his girlfriend's passed out. He makes a pass at the sister, tries to get with the sister. The sister rejects him. He's pissed. In yeah, the early absolutely. morning. Yeah. In the early morning hours of November 14, shortly after Charity left, Adam woke up crying and got out of bed. There's some evidence that he had wet the bed. Instead of comforting Adam and caring for him, Fairchild told Adam to shut up and hit him in the face, rupturing the inside of his lip. When Adam continued crying, Fairchild held the child's chest and buttocks against a heater, inflicting second-degree burns, which are the most painful. Fairchild continued hitting Adam, rupturing one of his eardrums. In a rage at Adam's continued cries, Fairchild beat Adam, then threw him across the room into a side of a drop leaf <sighs> table. When Adam flips, hit the floor, he stopped crying. He also stopped breathing. Fairchild woke Stacy and called 911. Initially, he told police that Adam was injured running around the house. Fairchild repeated that lie in a clear and concise handwritten statement, which was given to Sergeant Smith at 2.10 a.m., only 35 minutes after Adam became unconscious. In that statement, Fairchild claimed, I was sitting down watching TV at 1.35, and my son Adam was running in the house. He ran right into the table, and I asked him if he was all right. 
I could not get him to answer, so I started shaking him, but he was not coming to. Two days later, Fairchild admitted that he pushed Adam against the heater, struck him the more he screamed, and threw him into the table. In a videotaped interview, Fairchild told the detective that he wouldn't shut up. I told him to go to sleep. I went back to sleep. I heard a loud noise. I woke up, and there was Adam laying down. I tried to get him up. I got scared. But later in the same interview, he admitted that the more he screamed, the more I just kept on hitting him. And then I, I have a quote here. Fairchild says, I think I smacked him again. Was that in the living room, which is the tech detective? Fairchild responds, yes, sir. And the, the detective said, that's when he wouldn't wake up, right? Yes, sir. He wouldn't move. So I went in there to bed with Stacy and I told her I can't get Adam to move. I was pretty intoxicated too much. I just couldn't control my temper, I guess. Um, well, I mean, it goes back to the thing about, I mean, the thing with a heater, I mean, that's just not normal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm not trying to excuse any child abuse, but even smacking a kid or hitting him, I mean, it's horrible, but I mean, the heater, that's just not right. something that a normal person and does. and these are these are not you know these are not accidental things it's not like he hit him and adam yeah. stumbled into the heater and got one right. single burn he had burns on his chest and his back and it's not, yeah he was trying Fairchild to torture him held him and then turned him around it was torture and it wasn't an accident it was deliberate right it's not even intentional like intentional I mean, action against adam Exactly. I mean, not to excuse, I mean, shaking a kid or hitting a kid, but those are, I mean, I, setting him up to burn him is just beyond the pale. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a warrant was issued for Fairchild's arrest on November 18th, 1993. He may have been in custody uh, from the 16th after he admitted to, to causing Adam's injuries. And uh, I don't have it in the notes. Adam's mother did plead guilty to allowing child abuse to occur. So she has some culpability in this. But if Fairchild's behavior is excused because of his drug use and his alcohol use and his intoxication at the time, so's hers. You know, you can't have it both ways. Right. Um, as, although one poster on an article about this case or about Adam, uh, actually said something nasty to one of Adam's sisters thinking that she was talking to the mother, because like most advocates for these people, they don't know the facts of the case and they don't know who the victims are. So, uh, Fairchild was charged on November 28, 1993, with child abuse murder under 21 Oklahoma Statute 701.7C. Uh, and as we talked about with Benjamin Cole, this is a general intent crime. You don't have to have specific intent to bring about the victim's death to be guilty of first-degree murder of a child, a child abuse murder. And... I understand Fairchild's attorneys and Cole's attorneys don't agree with that, but that is the law in the state of Oklahoma. 
and that has been upheld by the Oklahoma courts, and the federal courts have not chosen to step in and say, no, they can't do that. So that's the law. You don't have to have specific intent to bring about the child's death in order to be guilty of first-degree murder when you abuse a child in Oklahoma. And I think that's how it should be. Um, so the venue for this case would have been in district court in for Oklahoma County. The judge was Major Wilson, who died shortly after the trial. Uh, the state was represented by the Oklahoma County DA, and no names were listed on the um, on the docket, so I didn't worry about who the DAs were. Uh, I'm surprised, though, that we haven't heard Bob Macy's name brought in because that's who they when it's in yeah, oklahoma county exactly that's who they usually try the and, standard. and criticize um richard fairchild was initially represented by an attorney by the name of michael gassaway in norman however he changed attorneys th attorneys three times over the course of from the indictment to trial and i actually just I, I just gave up trying to figure out who all the attorneys were because it wasn't the docket's huge and I, it, it was hard to tell. So I just skipped that. So I don't know who represented him at trial. Uh, ultimately, my apologies for, for not doing that. Um, there was an application to determine competency filed on November 18, 1994. Uh, and that was by Fairchild. So that halted the proceedings. And um, they had to go have a competency hearing, which was held on April 10th, 1995. And then on, uh, I think that hearing was determined whether there would be a jury determination of competency. Apparently in Oklahoma, when competency issues are raised, they actually bring just the competency issue before a jury. And the jury determines competency. But whether that happens or not, I think is ultimately is initially decided by the judge. So the hearing is held. The judge in this particular instance on May 1st, 1995, uh, ordered resumption of the proceedings and that there would not be a jury trial on competency. Um, on 11-29-1995, Fairchild's counsel filed multiple motions. They uh, sought to declare the death penalty in Oklahoma unconstitutional. They wanted to limit victim impact evidence. They wanted to limit crime scene photos. They wanted to strike the state's bill of particulars. Uh, they wanted a more specific bill of particulars, and they wanted to strike the continuing threat aggravator. Now, another thing that I don't note is that apparently late in the pretrial proceedings just before a preliminary hearing the state filed a bill of particulars seeking the death penalty initially i guess they weren't going to go for death penalty but at some point that decision changed and they filed their bill of particulars um so the guilt innocence phase of the trial was held January 8th, 
to January 18th, 1996. Uh, and I'm gonna read for everyone the child abuse murder definition so that perhaps they can understand why it's a general intent crime or why it's referred to as general intent. A person commits murder in the first degree when the death of a child results from the willful or malicious injuring, torturing, maiming, or using of unreasonable force by said person or who shall willfully cause, procure, or permit any of said acts to be done upon the child pursuant to section 843.5 of this title. It is sufficient for the crime of murder in the first degree that the person either willfully tortured or used unreasonable force upon the child or maliciously injured or maimed the child. So you don't have to have, usually in first degree murder, you do have to have specific intent to bring about the victim's death. In child abuse murder, you don't. Uh, the verdict was was uh, reached by the jury in the first phase or first stage, as they call it in Oklahoma, on November 18, uh, on January 18, 1996. The penalty phase and the jury sentence also occurred on January 18, 1996, stage two. Uh, the only aggravating factor was that murder was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, and the jury. Uh, found that factor to exist beyond a reasonable doubt and sentenced Fairchild to death. Which is too um, kind for him. Yes. And um, on February 2nd, 1996, uh, the judge formally sentenced Fairchild to death. Fairchild then went to the Court of Criminal Appeals on direct appeal he was represented by an attorney by the name of Leanne Peters. Uh, he filed his notice of appeal on February 2nd, 1996. So that was the same day he was sentenced. Uh, he also, on the 26th of, of February, filed an application for stay of execution. Because I think Oklahoma is one of those states where in order to keep the, the process moving along, a pro forma date is pronounced at formal sentencing so that the, you know, competency issues can be ra are raised and um, there's no delay in no, a direct appeal or, or any of that stuff. And I think that's, again, just designed to keep the process moving. Um, the stay was granted on March 8th, 1996. And then there was a remand to the district court on October 11th, 1996, to determine whether the late Judge Wilson, who died prior to filing his judge's trial report, which was mandated by law, uh, to determine whether Judge Wilson had prepared the trial judge's report or whether his notes in anticipation of preparation of the report could be found. Um, on October 31st, 1996, the district court, Judge Dan Owens, filed his findings, and that was that there were no trial notes and no report had been prepared. Um, the reason this was done is because one of the issues being raised was the fact that in other cases, the Court of Criminal Appeals had relied on the trial judge's notes to make determinations 
alter sentencing, uh, decide whether to vacate, you know, vacate convictions and send cases back based on the trial judge's notes. So that's kind of speculative. Fairchild's attorneys were speculating that those notes or report could have been uh, beneficial to him in his appeal. Um, his brief was filed on uh, on, Jan on June 2nd, 1997. He raised uh, multiple errors. Uh, the first two that were raised were kind of general ones in Propositions 8 and 16, which were that the bill of particulars should not have been allowed by the trial court because the state failed to file it prior to or at the district court arraignment and late filed denying uh, fair title speedy trial and that uh, the competency proceedings held Fairchild to an unconstitutional standard approving his lack of competency by clear and convincing evidence. So those were kind of the pretrial errors. And then the first stage evidentiary issues that he raised were in Proposition 3, that the evidence was insufficient to support a conviction because the evidence of Fairchild's intoxication was, uh, at the time the crime was committed, precluded proof of intent to injure or use of unreasonable force on a child. Proposition 4, that the admission of uh, testimony by state's witness, Dr. Stumke, a physician who did not treat the victim, but who testified as an expert witness from the medical record. Um, and the specific complaints about Dr. Stumpsey's testimony were his conclusion that Adam's injuries were caused by child abuse, his cumulative recitation of the injuries, and his statements regarding the fact that those injuries caused Adam pain. And then Proposition 5, that a color autopsy photograph taken of the inside of Adam's skull cap lying on a blue cloth background was inadmissible. Uh, then he raised issues related to jury instructions in Proposition 1 and 2, which were that the um, jury instruction giving the meaning of willful in the context of willful use of unreasonable force was faulty, that the trial court committed reversible error by denying the requested jury instruction on second-degree murder due to voluntary intoxication, and that the trial court should have instructed the jury on its own um, on its own merit or on its own action on manslaughter in the first degree when perpetrated without a design to affect death and in a heat of passion, but in a cruel and unusual manner. Um, so as we can see, these issues that are being raised now in relation to clemency are, are ones that were raised, have been raised throughout the course of the case. Um, then he raised second stage evidentiary issues in Proposition 5 uh, related to the introduction of 18 postmortem photographs in the punishment phase, documenting Adam's injuries. Um, he argued that those were cumulative and unduly prejudicial. In Proposition 9, the use of the same evidence proved guilt and the aggravating circumstance that the murder was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel was a form of double jeopardy barred by state and federal constitutions. 
the uh, Proposition 11, the evidence is insufficient to prove the murder was especially heinous, atrocious, cruel, because the injuries inflicted upon the child worked together to contribute to his death. Uh, jury instruction errors raised were in Proposition 10. There was an error in punctuation in one of uh, the jury instructions, number four, which Fairchild argued caused the trial court to advise the jury that the aggravating circumstance, in fact, existed beyond a reasonable doubt. Rather than directing the jury to decide that question. And then in Proposition 14, raised five challenges to the second stage jury instructions, um, including that the trial court did not inform the jury, the finding of mitigating circumstances did not have to be unanimous, that addressed the instructions on the use of mitigating evidence, which directed the jury that mitigating circumstances are those which in fairness and mercy may be considered extenuating or re reducing the degree of moral culpability or blame, that the trial court erred by failing to instruct the jury of that. The trial court misinstructed the jury on the process of weighing the aggravating mitigating evidence. And finally, that the trial court declined to instruct the jury on the meaning of life without parole or the meaning of life sentence when the jury sent a question about the meaning of life without parole and the judge responded that the jury had all the evidence it needed to decide the case. And then in Pro uh, Proposition 12, he argued that the especially heinous, atrocious, and cruel ag aggravating circumstance was unconstitutionally vague. And in uh, Proposition 17, that his death sentence was influenced by passion and prejudice. He also raised transcript errors in Proposition 6 that um, several bench conferences were not were not transcribed and there were other errors in the transcript that deprived him of the right to a meaningful appeal because he could not present his claims fully. Um, he raised an issue about the lack of report by the trial judge in Proposition 7, uh, which he claimed denied him meaningful appellate review. He raised an issue as to the constitutionality of the child mur uh, murder statute in Proposition 15, claiming the statute was unconstitutionally vague, and in Proposition 13, that the authorization of the death penalty for the murder of a child, which requires only an intent to injure, not an intent to kill, um, was unconstitutional under the 8th, 14th uh, amendments of the federal constitution and the Oklahoma constitution uh, Article 2, Section 7, 9, and 19. Uh, and he also raised um, that his federal constitutional arguments were supported by Enman versus Florida and Tyson versus Arizona, which were felony murder cases. And we'll talk about them a little bit more uh, later. Cumulative, so uh, then finally, uh, Proposition 18, uh, he argued cumulative cumulative error required reversal. So even if individually the errors don't require reversal, to, taken together, they all require reversal. And I'm sorry, you were about to ask a question. No, I mean, I was just going to say, I mean, not to be cross, but it still seems like I killed the poor child and tortured him to death, but here's a bunch of bullshit why I should get off. Right, right. And, and that's all attorneys. this technical crap. 
Yeah. And um, we'll talk about the, the, especially Tyson a little bit later. Um, but yeah, those were felony murder cases in which basically the Supreme Court says that the culpability of a person who didn't pull the trigger should be a separate determination made by the jury in a death penalty case. Um, but in this case, spoiler alert, Tyson doesn't apply because Fairchild actually killed the victim. So, uh, on shortly after filing the appellate brief on June 6, 1997, his trial attorney, uh, also direct appeal attorney rather, filed a disclaimer informing the uh, Court of Criminal Appeals that no investigation outside the record would be done by counsel due to lack lack of adequate funding and time. On August 20th, 1998, the decision uh, of the Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed Fairchild's conviction and sentence. Fairchild's attorneys filed a petition for rehearing and motion to stay the mandate on September 9th, 1998. And on August 4th, 1999, the Court of Criminal Appeals granted a rehearing and withdrew its opinion from August 20th, 1998. So I don't know what the August 20th opinion even says because it was it was withdrawn. Um, they rendered a, a substitute opinion on rehearing on December 7th, 1999, where they essentially affirmed the conviction and sentence finding that the defense of voluntary intoxication was unavailable, that the expert testimony and autopsy evidence were properly admitted, and the death penalty in such a case was not cruel or unusual punishment. Uh, there was a dissent, or were two dissents by Judges Struber and Chapel, and basically they felt that the child abuse murder statute should be specific intent crime, not general intent. They disagreed. They argued that that was Oklahoma law and that this decision was actually deviating from established law. And then Judges Lumpkin and Johnson both concurred in the finding or in the, in the opinion. There was a petition for rehearing, filed a, a second petition for hearing a motion to stay, filed on December 27, 1998. 99 by Fairchild, and that was decided on May 11, 2000. Uh, the petition for rehearing was denied because uh, Fairchild's petition met neither of the criterion for rehearing provided for in the rules of the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, but they corrected their opinion to um, correct paragraph 22 to um, basically add a capital T and a, from with a lowercase add a period and a capital T in the first two sentences of paragraph 22. Uh, and then they added or deleted language from uh, paragraph 38 regarding general intent is presumed from the criminal act itself. And Judge Chapel again, filed a dissent, 
he would grant rehearing and he argued that the child abuse murder, uh, the majority's conclusion that child abuse murder is a general intent crime departs from settled case law. Their mandate issued on May 17, 2000, a writ of certiorari was filed to the U.S. Supreme Court. On October 19, 2000, uh, that writ was denied on May 29, 2001, and Fairchild's conviction and sentence became final at that time. So, any questions? No, it's a lot. Good stuff. It's it still feels like a lot of lawyering to let another guilty person off the hook. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, this is one of the reasons I do this the way I do it, because it shows this is not they're not just rubber stamping the conviction and sentence. Right. Yeah, I exactly. Mean, that opinion is like. 30 pages, two columns per page in 10-point type. So it it's they 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 analyze his errors, they analyze the facts he uh supporting his arguments, and then they analyze why he doesn't win. Right. Or why those thing those those claims lack merit. And I mean, justice is really important. I mean, I want everyone to have a fair trial. I mean, very passionately, but it's, you can just tell on some of these cases where there's no question that the, you know, there's not even any question. He doesn't even dispute that he did it, mm -hmm. but it's just a bunch of, you know, procedural objection. It's, it's frustrating. Yeah. And I, I think it it's frustrating for me. It's, he doesn't, claim he didn't do it but he's always claimed it's not his fault well and it's never anybody's fault right you know it's always somebody else's fault that's what it boils down to so then uh he went on to state post-conviction and that is in oklahoma in the court of criminal appeals he was represented by an attorney named brian dupler and a second attorney named hossein Ray reza i don't know whether those were together or at different times um and uh he raised he filed his application for post-conviction relief on march 16th 1998 and he raised multiple propositions of error uh beginning with proposition one ineffective assistance of counsel on direct appeal related to the filing of her disclaimer Proposition two, he raised error as um, regarding a pamphlet that apparently was given to jurors in Oklahoma County, uh, advising them that they can donate funds they earn as a result of their jury service to prevent child abuse. Um, that he wasn't, he didn't show that any members of his jury actually received this plant pamphlet. He just said this pamphlet's been given out and that's not fair. Uh, proposition three, he urged the court to adopt the ABA's moratorium on executions. Proposition four, um, he alleged ineffective of trial counsel for failure to present mitigating evidence of organic brain damage and or CTA, CTE. 
Proposition 5, ineffective assistance of direct appeal counsel for failure to sufficiently raise and argue that the sole aggravator was proven beyond a reasonable doubt or was not proven by a reason beyond a reasonable doubt. Hey, Lisa, I had to interrupt you. Apologies, mm -hmm. but a basic yeah. question. Who is paying for all of this? I mean, this is just, this mm. is a ton of legal work. Yeah. Are these um, just pro bono organizations these, that just fund all of these things? These may have been either Oklahoma Indigent Defense, uh, Oklahoma Public Defenders, or... Uh, pro bono or potentially retained. Hmm. Uh, from what I saw uh, until he got into federal court, he was not seeking um, to proceed in form of pauperous, which is uh, or alleging pauper, not seeking public attorneys. So and it's not quite as clear in Oklahoma as it is in some other states. So these could have been privately retained. These could have been retained by a family member, one of his siblings. Um, they could have been retained by an anti-death penalty group. Mm. Be and I, I, that's my speculation because they were urging the court to adopt a moratorium on execution put forward by the American Bar Association, which has nothing to do with Fairchild's trial or the fairness thereof. Um, so uh, this one, I'm not really entirely sure. Um, and so going on with his propositions in his first state post-conviction, propositions six, seven, and eight, he argued ineffective assistance of direct appeal counsel for failure of, to object to the prosecutor sitting between Fairchild and a child witness, failure to object to the prosecutor urging jurors to pray, and failure to raise the improper instruction on life without parole. Uh, proposition nine was an objection to Oklahoma statutory pr provisions for capital post-conviction procedure. Proposition 10 argued that cumulative error, that even if one of these errors is not sufficient, uh, together they are. And Proposition 11, he cited the need for an evidentiary hearing to uh, determine on as to procedurally defaulted grounds to determine whether direct appeal counsel's extra record investigation efforts were the ad adequacy of resources for appeal and the rules and procedures of the court to apprise direct appeal counsel of the necessity for extra record investigation and the availability of procedures to permit the presentation of extra rec record evidence in direct appeal proceedings. A motion for discovery was also filed on March 16, 1998. Um, the decision was rendered by the Court of Criminal Appeals on October 25th, 2000. They denied the evidentiary hearing and motion for discovery as they found no material factual is issues presented by Fairchild. And they deny relief on the basis that um, many of the errors raised were not objected to at trial. 
that some of the issues as to uh, organic brain damage and um, the mitigating factors could have been raised on direct appeal. They also argued that or found that the claims of organic brain damage were actually refuted by a report of January 15th, 1992, which was the psychiatric examination Fairchild underwent during his 30-day um, inpatient admission in Texas. And then finally, they found that uh, the issues presented in Propositions 11 and 12 or that the issues related to organic brain damage and, uh, were presented in Propositions 11 and 12 of direct appeal. Um, and this is what they're doing kind of, is that they are, each time they're going out and they're having somebody give them, an expert give them a better report with a more definitive finding mm -hmm. to support whatever arguments they're going to make. Um, so, uh, that's, they, they're kind of dolling it up. And one of the problems they have with doing it this way is that they can't claim he's actually innocent. Right. So they can't claim a miscarriage of justice to excuse their failure to present the issue or the evidence sooner. Um, Fairchild then moved on to federal court and he was recommend, uh, represented first by Vicki Ruth Adams Warnicky, and then later by Randy A. Bowman and the state was represented by Drew Edmondson. Um, initially, the case was in the United States District Court for the Western District of Oklahoma and the judge at that time was Ralph G. Thompson. A motion for appointment of counsel was filed on October 2nd, 2001, and that was seeking Warnicky's appointment. Warnicky was appointed on October 4th, 2001 in an order. Um, a case management and budget conference were held, and the minutes were issued on uh, November 7th, 2001, uh, setting some deadlines, including that the petition was due on May 6th, 2002. Um, on also on November 7th, the court denied the motion to appoint counsel and the motion to proceed in form of operas, which was to proceed um, with public resources rather than as an indigent. Mm. Um, so then a motion to appoint counsel was filed on January 25th, 2002 appointing Randy A. Bowman, and I'm, I'm thinking Warnicky withdrew. Or Warnicky could no longer represent him when the, when the motion uh. to appoint was denied. Um, and then there was a motion to extend time to file a petition filed on April 23rd, 2002, requesting a 10-day extension, which was granted on April 24th. Um, the petition for writ of certiorari, uh, writ of habeas corpus, rather, was filed on May 16, 2002, and he raised multiple grounds. The first, due process and equal protection in ground one, 
arguing that the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals determinations regarding the requisite intent for child abuse murder and the appropriateness of voluntary intoxication and lesser included offense instructions were error and a change of law violating his due process and equal protection rights under the 6th, 8th, and 14th Amendments to the United States Constitution. Ground two, arguing that the requisite mens rea for sentence of death um, requirement for child abuse murder by the OCCA uh, move the crime out of the category of crimes for which a death sentence may be constitutionally imposed. More specifically, he argued that the Supreme Court felony murder cases of Edmund and Tyson prohibit an imposition of a death penalty of death absent an additional culpability finding and that no such finding was made in this case by the jury or the courts. Voluntary intoxication defense was ground three uh, and lesser included offense instructions basically argued that the jury was not given the option of finding guilty of the lesser included offenses of second degree murder due to voluntary intoxication or of second degree manslaughter in violation of the 5th, 6th, 8th, and 14th Amendments and contrary to Beck versus Alabama. Ground four was speedy trial, that he was deprived of his constitutional right to a speedy trial by the state's belated filing immediately prior to second summary preliminary hearing of a second page to the information and a bill of particulars. Finish, He's just throwing everything out there. Yeah. Petitioner claims this action by the state forced him to acquiesce in continuances in order to adequately prepare, prepare for a capital trial, creating a violent uh, violation of his speedy trial rights. And of course, he doesn't acknowledge that he changed attorneys three times. <laughs> right. During exactly. Court, yeah. Period. And then, none of the stuff that he did. Right before trial was set, the first time they filed a motion to determine competency. Um, and then ground five, the uh, he claimed an error in the specially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, aggravating circumstance instruction that man because the the punctuation error mandated a finding by the jury and amounted to a directed verdict by the trial court. Uh, and then ground six was the constitutionality of a specially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, aggravating circumstance. Um, which he argued was not properly defined or narrowed, and because the jury was not informed that undue conscious physical or mental suffering was required to show serious physical abuse, um, which that one chaps my bum because second-degree burns are the most painful. Hmm. And while this may have seemed to happen fast for Fairchild, I right. guarantee you, for a three-year-old kid, it didn't seem to be fast. No, not at all. Um, and so, you know, if it was 10 minutes, that's two, 10 minutes too long for Adam. Ground seven, ineffective assistance of trial and appellate counsel, arguing that trial counsel knew or should have known of, of the organic brain damage and they were ineffective for failing to investigate and develop the information further uh, and also alleging ineffective assistance because of direct appeal counsel because they um, OCCA determined he waived the claim and was procedurally barred from raising it on post-conviction review because he could have raised it in direct appeal. And it was raised to a degree in direct appeal. 
It's just it was it was polished up a little bit more in post conviction. Then ground eight was prosecutorial misconduct, um, which was prosecutors improper statements and tactics during the second stage of the trial. I believe that's when the prosecutor put himself between the vict uh, a child witness and Fairchild uh, that during colloquy with the jury, he urged them to pray. And um, I can't remember what the third one was, which we cited in his post state post-conviction. Then ground nine was failure to instruct the jury um, that they were not required to return a sentence of death, even if the aggravating circumstances outweighed mitigating factors. They also uh, claimed it was error to not inform the jurors that they were not required to be unanimous on the existence of mitigating factors before those factors may be considered against imposing a sentence of death. Ground 10 was competence, Fairchild's competence to stand trial, challenging the pretrial competency proceedings uh, and alleging that they were in violation of Cooper versus Oklahoma. Ground 11 was failure to provide jury instruction regarding life without parole. Again, you know, basically the jury asked if Fairchild would ever get out if he were sentenced to life without parole and the juror, the judge said, you have everything you need. Uh, but he alleged sure. that this was uh, indication that the, the jurors were confused about the meaning and significance of the sentencing option and that the judge violated Simmons versus South Carolina and Schaefer versus South Carolina when he refused to provide them with guidance. And then ground 12 was cumulative impact of error in the event that any individual error is deemed insufficient to warrant relief. The accumulation of errors so infected the trial and sentencing proceedings with unfairness that Fairchild was denied due process of law and a reliable sentencing proceeding in violation of his rights under the 6th, 8th, and 14th Amendments. Uh, a motion for discovery was also filed. And on June 11, 2002, that motion for discovery was granted. Um, on July 11, 2002, Fairchild filed a motion to expand the record. The state filed a motion for extension of time on July 19th. Uh, that was granted on August 2nd. And then the state filed a second motion for extension of time on August 5th, which was granted because the state has to file not only its response, but the state court record. Um, and so they were seeking extra time to do those things. And uh, on August 5th, 2002, the state court record and the response were filed. The Bauman filed a motion to withdraw on September 23rd, 2004, and that was granted on September 28th, 2004. And then a decision was finally rendered on September 26, 2006, and my connection has become, un become unstable. If we, if you lose me, um, I guess, I think Zoom dies. You're doing okay. <laughs> I can hear you okay. You got a little bit off, okay. but I can still hear you. All right. So relief was denied, and the, the federal court found after a complete review of the transcripts, trial record, appellate record, Record on post-conviction and briefs filed by petitioner and respondent and the applicable law 
The court finds petitioner's request for relief in a petition for writ of habeas corpus by a person in state custody to be without merit. Accordingly, habeas relief on all grounds is denied. And a judgment in favor of the warden and against Fairchild was issued the same day. Um, Fairchild filed a motion for certificate of appealability and notice of appeal on October 26, 2006, and he sought a certificate of appealability on grounds one through eight and grounds 11 and 12. A, um, the notice of appeal was to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeal. And now, interestingly, he was represented at that time by, by Randy Bauman. On November 1st, 2006, the district court denied his request for a, a certificate of appealability as to his speedy trial claim, ground four, error in especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel jury instruction in ground five, constitutionality of especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, aggravating circumstance in ground six, prosecutorial misconduct in ground eight, and cumulative error in ground 12. And this is probably more likely than not because the issues lacked merit and, and Fairchild didn't present any evidence that would lead to the state of Oklahoma changing its um, right. jury instruction or, or even the existence of especially in its church school. And other cases have upheld these, you know, that the especially anus or cruel is constitutional. Right, then, exactly. Sorry about that. Had to take a little break. Um, he granted a COA on uh, ground one, due process and equal protection. Ground two, the mens rea for a death sentence, which is mens rea is... Um, uh, intent. I don't, I, I, I knew the Latin phrase. I knew what it meant. And right now I can't think of what it meant. So <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, and if it comes my, to me, I'll blurt it out. Yeah. My high school Latin isn't helping there. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> it's state of mind. It's intent state yeah, of mind. Right. Um, uh, Ground three on voluntary intoxication and lesser included offense instructions. Ground seven, ineffective assistance of counsel. And ground 11, failure to provide adequate instruction regarding life without parole sentencing option. Um, on August 31st, 2009, after briefing, uh, the U.S. Court of Criminal Appeal, 10th uh, Circuit Court of Appeal, rather, held that the evidence presented to the habeas court significantly altered Fairchild's ineffective assistance of counsel claim, placing it in a much stronger legal posture than in the state court proceedings. If borne out upon investigation by trial counsel, as Dr. Crown's later affidavit suggested it would have been, such evidence could have provided an important explanation for the jury, similar to what we described in Smith versus Mullen. Um, that although the jury received evidence of the defendant's impulsiveness and lack of control, what was lacking was an explanation of how the defendant's organic brain damage caused these outbursts of violence and caused this kind-hearted person to commit such a shocking crime. 
And that's a quote from Smith versus Mullen. Although trial counsel did provide an explanation of sorts through his emphasis of the effect of alcohol on Mr. Fairchild, um, whereas Smith's counsel was not even aware of his mental health issues and that they could have been presented in mitigation, if that explanation was selected before a reasonable inve investigation was conducted or no reasonable decision not to investigate further was made, the decision would violate Strickland, Terry Williams, and Wiggins versus Smith. And those are all Supreme Court cases. Mm. Uh, the court went on to say, if established the facts reflected in the additional evidence that Mr. Fairchild has presented in his habeas proceeding might well support a claim of ineffective assistance under Strickland. However, at this junction, we declined to decide whether trial counsel's performance was unconstitutionally deficient. Before we can pass on the merits of Mr. Fairchild's ineffective assistance claim, he must first exhaust all available state court remedies. The district court judgment was vacated and the case was remanded to make a stay in abeyance determination and to conduct further proceedings. So the mandate issued also on uh, September 22nd, 2009. So basically the 10th circuit is saying, well, he did present this quote new evidence that made his claim stronger than it was in state court. So they were giving him the opportunity to go back to state court and present this quote new evidence in state right. court, um, which was undertaken by Christy Christopher. Um, and it, he went back to the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals. He filed the second application for post-conviction relief on October 9, 2009. And uh, keep in mind that at this point, they're actually kind of parallel. There's proceedings going on in the Court of Criminal Appeals, and there's parallel proceedings going on in federal court. Um, so they, he argued that new evidence supported his claim that at the time the crime was committed, he suffered from organic brain damage, which mitigated his culpability in this crime. Previous counsel were ineffective in failing to fully investigate and present evidence of his organic brain damage, which would have constituted effective mitigating evidence. Um, he also filed a motion for evidentiary hearing. The uh, Court of Criminal Appeals rendered a decision on October 1st, 2009. Uh, and um, I have found there is a great site that you can pull unpublished decisions from Oklahoma courts. Mm. I did not previously know of Unpublished it. Unpublished decisions, interesting. Unpublished decisions, which are not available. That's really interesting. On their site. Um, and basically, when I post this link on Facebook, I will post in the comments a link to this site. Uh, but And you can do it from any court. Um, court of Criminal Appeals, uh, Supreme Court. Court of Appeals, well, any appellate court. You can't, hmm. still can't get district court or trial court, but any appellate court. Um, and Oklahoma is pretty good. They have a, uh, they have a pretty comprehensive online docket system, and gotcha. you can get some district and trial court going forward. Historically, you probably can't get 
anything, but I'll post a link to this site. I just had to say, because a lot of times with state post-conviction in Oklahoma, they don't publish. And then I don't know exactly what the claims were, and I don't know exactly what they decided or how they decided or why mm. they decided. And so in looking for this, I discovered, or in looking for the 2000, to the 2000 decision, rather, I discovered this site. Um, so on the, like I said, the December 1st, 2009, the Court of Criminal Appeals rendered a decision. They denied relief, finding that the information presented by Fairchild contained facts which were available to both trial and appellate counsel. The same claims were the subject of an ineffective assistance claim in Proposition 4 of Fairchild's original application for post-conviction relief filed on May 16, 1998. The facts presented did not fit the definition of newly discovered evidence because they were not presented within 60 days from the date of the discovery of the evidence, as the affidavits attached in support of the application were dated during 2002, seven years prior to the filing of the subsequent application. The court ruled that Fairchild had waived consideration of these issues and that the claims were an expansion of the theories espoused in the original application as the evidence merely built upon evidence previously presented in this court. Fairchild's claim of ineffective assistance of counsel was barred because the same issue was raised under an ineffective assistance of counsel claim in his original application. Finally, the court failed to find that Fairchild had suffered or will suffer a miscarriage of justice based on the claims. The court therefore declined to exercise its inherent power to grant relief when other avenues are barred or waived and denied an evidentiary hearing. And their mandate issued the same day. Then they were still in federal court. Um, on October 15th, an order was issued scheduling deadlines for Fairchild and the warden to file motions in response as to whether to hold the proceedings in abeyance. Um, Fairchild filed his motion on November 13th, 2009. Uh, the state filed its response on December 3rd, 2009, and attached not only the unpublished decision from the second application for PCR relief by Fairchild, but apparently the issues had been raised in other cases in Oklahoma, and they attached additional successive denial of successive relief opinions. Um, Fairchild replied on December 14, 2009, basically claiming that uh, the state's analysis of his claims was flawed and arguing that the posture of the case uh, was not what the state claimed it was. They also argued that Fairchild's claim was meritorious, fully exhausted, and ready for merits review by the federal court. Uh, state court records were received on September 2nd, 2011. An order was received, uh, was issued denying the motion to hold proceedings in abeyance and setting a briefing schedule on January 3rd, 2012. Fairchild filed a, filed a motion to extend briefing schedule, motion for extension or to reschedule briefing on January 12th, 2012. That was denied on January 12, 2012, 
Additional state court records were received on September 11th, 2012. And then on January 10th, 2013, um, the court rendered its decision. Um, the other thing is that the judge who rendered the initial habeas decision had retired or passed or or left the bench. Um, and a new judge, Judge Timothy DeGiusti, was the new judge. And I thought I had that in my, oh, yes, I did. I just skipped over it. So <laughs> it was a different judge. Right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> he, um, he found that uh, ground seven, which related to ineffective assistance of counsel, for failure to present the organic brain damage was pr procedurally barred denied he also denied the remaining claims based on the review on his review and consideration of judge thompson's memorandum opinion which he adopted and incorporated and denied habeas relief and yeah, issued a judgment these, in favor of the warden i yeah. mean all of these things are still like a lot of these cases, all of these issues are always brought up way after the fact. I can't understand if if you thought you were brain damaged, you thought you had all these problems, why didn't he bring it up at trial? They always have the opportunity to well, bring it up in trial. I, I think what has happened in Fairchild's case, I think what happened was his attorneys got those 1992 emission records and that January 15th psychiatric evaluation did not support brain damage exactly. and did not find that he you know basically that that his actions were the result of brain damage means he somehow lacks control and loses control and doesn't realize what he's doing or what he's doing is wrong right. and that simply wasn't borne out by those records They've gotten doctors, and I think the the affidavits submitted in 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 the habeas, the federal habeas claims, were in 2002 based on examinations of Fairchild that took place long after he was convicted. Mm -hmm. And so his condition may have changed or deteriorated between the time he killed Adam and the time he was examined. in advance of the habeas claim being made. Um, now, Dr. Smith was an expert retained by the defense, but even Dr. Smith did not find or, you know, apparently was not that helpful in trial counsel's opinion. Or trial counsel merely decided, I'm not going to try and say this was his brain damage. Because that's going to be an insult to the jury. If it had been a fight between two grown men and Fairchild yep. had killed a grown man, right. yeah, you could argue brain damage. Yeah, exactly. You could argue, you know, he just lost it and got in this fight. But when you're talking about a three-year-old child who yeah. was struck, burned, beaten, and then thrown into a table and sustained a fatal head injury, you don't want to try to say he didn't mean to do it. It wasn't his fault. Right. It was his brain damage. 
Um, and, and his defense attorney said, you know, he's just a mean drunk. And that may have been a step too far, but I think he was trying to be honest with the jury and maybe have the jury, even though he couldn't get a voluntary intoxication instruction, maybe plant that seed in the jury's mind that he was just so drunk. He didn't know what he was doing. Right. Exactly. But again, I think when you come, when your victim is a 24 pound, three-year-old child, it just, nothing can reduce culpability um, for that. So um, then on the same date, uh, the judge issued an order, uh, January 10th, 2013, denying a certificate of appealability on um, all grounds. And basically he found that um, the Tenth Circuit had subsequently ruled on specific intent and voluntary intoxication lesser included offense uh, that they both concern requisite mental intent for child abuse murder. And they had address the same arguments raised by Fairchild and and decided against Fairchild's position. Um, they basically found that lacking in merit. So he denied that. Uh, ground two is not debatable among reasonable jurors given the holding in Workman versus Mullen. Because Petitioner actually killed the victim, there is no Edmund Tyson problem with Petitioner's sentence. So he's not entitled to the jury to make a separate culpability finding because he actually killed Adam. He's not saying a burglar came in and Adam must have caught him and he killed him to try and, you know, avoid being caught. Um, and also, I mean, he basically denied certificate of appealability on everything, finding that precedent foreclosed relief on all grounds. Um, and then there was an appeal again, February 8, 2013 to the 10th circuit in its opinion. And you notice I read that if he proved this, this could, you know, this could, could be good for him. Well, this is the holding that the 10th circuit rendered on April 23rd, 2015 defendant was properly denied habeas mm. relief on his due process and equal protection claims because the trial court's asserted change in the mens rea requirements for child abuse murder did not defy, deny defendant due process and equal protection. Two, defendant was properly denied habeas relief on his Eighth Amendment claim because an additional culpability finding, as might be required in order to apply the death penalty for a felony murder conviction, did not apply because defendant actually killed the child. And then number three, defendant was properly denied relief on his claim that the trial court erred in failing to give a lesser included offense instruction because the state appellate court had ruled contrary to defendant on the mens rea requirement and that ruling could not be set aside. And then the judgments of the uh, district court were affirmed. So the ground seven, which was the uh, organic brain damage evidence um, they didn't even address that one. 
So, um, and that's because that was the only issue that they returned and they didn't address any of the other, the other claims. The mandate issued on June 17, 2015, and a petition to the U.S. Supreme Court petition for writ of sociorari was filed on November 10, 2015, um, and that was denied on January 11, 2016. Emma Rolls with, I think, the Federal Public Defender's Office has stepped in now and has been representing Fairchild along with many other uh, inmates for some time. Um, of course, Fairchild was part of Glossop versus Chandler, which was a challenge to Oklahoma's lethal injection procedure. Um, a joint stipulation was entered on October 16, 2015, which we talked about in more detail when we talked about Glossop. But right. basically in that, the state agreed not to set an execution date for any inmate for at least 150 days um, after a new execution protocol was provided to counsel for the plaintiffs. Um, the state, however, when, when Fairchild's Remedies were exhausted. They filed a notice pursuant to 22 OS 2011, section 1001.1, noting that his state and federal remedies had been exhausted and advising the, C, uh, the criminal Court of Criminal Appeals that setting an execution date was not appropriate due to the stipulation as well as the continuing investigation of the Department of Corrections because of the mm. error in the Warner execution drug. Um, and the Court of Criminal Appeals issued an order on the 22nd of January, 2016, um, so just noting that an execution date would not be set, but we're also requesting status reports. And those status reports are filed between monthly, between March 30th, 2016, and February 3rd, 2020. And then on the 13th of February, 2020, the amended execution protocol was filed. Um, they continued filing status reports between March 3rd, 2020 and June 1st, 2022, while the federal court challenge proceeded. And again, we talked about that in some detail with Glossop, and I'm not going to go into that again. All right. But uh, in Glossop versus Chandler on June 6, 2022, the judge issued an order that found that the plaintiffs had fallen well short of clearing the bar set by the Supreme Court. Consequently, the Eighth Amendment does not stand in the way of Oklahoma's protocol. Um, so on the 10th of June, the state filed another notice seeking an execution date of November 17th, 2022, that would make Fairchild the fourth person executed under the state's um, plan of resuming executions. And uh, he would be number four in phase one. Of course, he's going to be number three because Glossop ended up getting a, a 
stay from the governor. Um, Coddington has been executed. Cole will be executed on Thursday. Mm. Pending, well, there, there, there's a, we'll talk about Cole. We'll talk about Cole right. at the end of the show. I'm not going to go off on that, on that tangent. <laughs> um, of course, they filed an objection to the notice and a request to hold setting of execution dates in abeyance on June 13th, objection to setting execution dates until the PPB is shown to be in compliance with 57 OS 332.1B, which requires that at least two members of the parole board have at least five years training in mental health, substance abuse, or social work. And at that time, they said the only one that has that is Larry Morris. On uh, the 14th, their objection was withdrawn because they had received information from the Pardon and Parole Board that Scott Williams also had the requisite training that was required. So the board is in compliance. On uh, July 1st, 2022, the Court of Criminal Appeals filed an order setting Fairchild's execution date for November 17, 2022. On October 5th, 2022, Fairchild's clemency petition was filed. And they cited various grounds to grant clemency, including but not limited to his organic brain damage, the ineffective assistance of his trial, direct appeal, and post-conviction counsel, who failed to adequately investigate and present evidence of that organic brain damage to his jury, that the jury was misinformed about the couple mental state for child abuse murder, that the jury considered sentencing Fairchild to life without parole based on its question to the judge, which the judge refused to answer, that his mental state had deteriorated and he is no longer able to distinguish between reality and delusions, that he sustained repeated traumatic brain injuries causing organic brain damage, which were worsened by his alcohol and drug use, that Adam's death was a result of Fairchild's organic brain disease and his alcohol and drug use. And then at a press conference, they said, Adam, they characterized Adam's death as an accident. That's uh, they, insane. They said before uh, Fairchild moved in, Adam was likely abused by his mother. He but held him up to, to a furnace. I know. I just, I mean, I don't, I don't know how with a straight face you can say, I mean, it that was that very mitigates. deliberate. I just, I, yeah, sorry. it's very front. These cases are so hard. And arguing it as though that mitigate, I think they're trying to like, like plant residual doubt. Maybe he's not the one who abused. Right. Adam, maybe it was the mother. Um, that Adam's death was a result of an explosive outburst of rage caused by Fairchild's organic brain disease, that he likely suffers from CTE, and that he has remorse. And one of the most insulting, ugliest, horrible things that they did is they said Adam would be 23 years old if he was alive today. No, he would be 32. He would have thir turned 32 in August. He would not be 23. It's just like, at least know that. And it, it, if it's a typo, 
you should have caught it. Right. At least, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's funny is that in this, it was like disjointed there. The clemency petition was disjointed. They would talk about how horrible things were. And then they would talk about his family. And then they would talk about how horrible things were. And they would talk about him boxing. And he did amateur boxing. And studies have shown amateur boxers actually don't have the types of of trauma that professional boxers. Because amateur boxers aren't doing it as much. Right. Um, They also claim Fairchild could not appear because he was so delusional. Um, His hearing was held on um, October 12th, 2022. And the board voted four to one deny to deny clemency. So, um, and there is, if you look on, I think you can find it on YouTube. Adam's grandmother was interviewed by one of the Oklahoma stations and she gave a really impassioned, um, statement on behalf of her family and on behalf of justice for Adam. I will try and find it and link it. Yeah. Everybody comments to kind of forget that about so this. We can see. Um, and of course I've seen on at least one page, I've seen a post from Lacey who was Adam's one of Adam's older sisters. Uh, and I've seen an ugly fair child advocate saying you should be on death row too because you let the abuse happen and that's like you're not talking to his mother you're talking to his sister who was a child at the time exactly um so uh and you know like you know we talked about it i think a little bit earlier we may not have talked about it on air i don't remember but um if he's got this organic brain damage that caused him to so totally lose control with a three-year-old kid how does he have a perfect record in prison yeah he's he's very he's pretty sophisticated for somebody that doesn't know right and wrong and is you know insane yeah so um how is it that he doesn't have these outbursts these tempers especially given that in prison he's probably you know been denied drugs and alcohol and at least during his first few years in prison, that was probably a, a challenge in and of itself. But they claim he's got a, he's got a, an impeccable prison record, right? And how is it that now with um, schizoaffective disorder and all these problems emotionally and mentally? And this organic brain damage and CTE, how is it that he's not having violent outbursts? Exactly. In yeah, exactly. With correctional officers. Yeah, because it other never. Prisoners? Yep. yep. All these claims never make sense in totality. You can isolate one little thing, but if you think about it broadly, it never makes sense. Yeah. They, they take things out of context. Exactly. Yep. So, um, but this was a really, really difficult really difficult case no i yeah it's i'm yeah it's hard to talk about and think about just that poor child and the the heater it's horrible even even compared to some of the other kid ones with it we've done before mm -hmm. it's especially heinous yeah um you know the only one that i have had 
this level of upset and anger has been Jeffrey McDonald. Mm. I mean, not even the West Memphis three case has made me as angry right as the the fairchild and and the fact that they're like i said they're trying to reduce this culpability by claiming it's an accident um by claiming that he wasn't responsible that because he didn't specifically intend to kill adam he shouldn't be on death row that he didn't deserve and and you know i i think adam's murder is a poster child for especially heinous atrocious and cruel right adam was tortured hmm. whether it was two minutes or 10 minutes or 20 right. minutes fairchild tortured a three-year-old 24 yep. pound unbelievable baby. toddler um you know, it just wasn't. It just special wasn't. place in hell for him. Yeah, exactly. So um, now Cole, the there was a request for a competency trial. Uh, there was a hearing on September 30th and the judge uh, declined to order a trial. So basically the courts have once again held that Benjamin Cole is competent. There is a challenge to that um, that has been launched by his attorneys. I believe they've basically filed another writ of mandamus, but I expect that the Court of Criminal Appeals or the district court will dispose of that fairly quickly. Um. I, they also may be filing a federal, going back to the federal competency claim that they filed. Um, but I don't know, again, I, I don't suspect that they will be successful. And I think they filed a, a request for a stay with the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. So uh, I will, of course, keep an eye on that and report on whether it was successful or not next time. Excellent. So, um, but uh, he's likely to be executed on Thursday, October 20th. And then Glossop uh, has actually, Don Knight has filed a motion to uh, be appointed in federal court. He apparently is planning on filing something in federal court. However, he's doing it in district court and not 10th Circuit Court of Appeal, which he's required to do under the successive application uh. rules. So I'm hoping that the dumbass files in the U.S. District Court. <laughs> And it gets dismissed and he has to go file it in 10th in Circuit. Well, but he keeps getting an ex he One would expect him to know because he supposedly does right. it all the time. Exactly. I was to say he keeps 
I mean, if anybody has been successful filing random appeals, it's been Glossop, goodness. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they, uh, and the state has filed its response to the second successive writ or PCR application filed by Glossop, and they took the gloves off. Hmm. And they pointed out several inconsistent statements made by Glossop over the years that are not consistent with what his Reed Smith and, and his attorneys now are claiming. Um, so that's going to be an interesting, um, an interesting follow-up show down the road, but I think I'm going to wait until at least after December 8th. Well, it's nice to, that one. well, and it's nice to feel the state actually fight back. It feels like more and more, they tend to just roll over and, and just swallow this mess. At least they're fighting back. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's it's not thank god it's not baltimore so um yeah seriously um that uh, i just i can't even I, I can't even think about that um with syed and Heyman lee and her birthday was i believe yesterday so um, well, and, all right. I, mean, I, I followed it a little bit, but yeah, that's the whole the Heyman Lee case is just absolutely crazy. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, that I think wraps it up for us. I um, I don't have anything else. Do you have no any final another great episode? Questions? You know, no, it's just, you know, as, as we've said before, it's just a really, these kids' cases are really, really tough. And especially this one with this guy yeah. torturing this poor child. And then, I don't know, you kind of wish you would just say, I did it, I'm guilty. Let me pass on all the, you know, all the fighting. It's extremely frustrating. I get it that, you know, it's part of our system, but be yeah. nice if for once these people that, you know, torture and murder a child would just admit to it and move on. Not appeal and not allow um, others to appeal on their behalf. Um, just like Coddington, I mean, he didn't have true remorse because he only said he had remorse thinking it would get him, a you know, clemency, a commutation. And when it didn't, he was like, well, I forgive you, Governor Stitt. And then didn't mention Albert Hale or Albert Hale's children or family in his final words. I mean, that's just not right. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you actually have remorse, somebody just says, yes, I did it. I regret it. It was horrible. I'll pay the price. Mm hmm that's whatever remorse. that price is exactly yeah. that's remorse not not um um uh okay I, I i was wrong but not that wrong exactly so all right well i guess we'll wrap this one up and thank you for listening to based in fact a true crime podcast with lisa o'brien and guest co-host kyle evans if you like the show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. 
Join us in two weeks for episode 18, State of Oklahoma versus John Fitzgerald Hansen. Hansen faces execution on December 15, 2022 for the 1999 murder of Mary Bowles. Hansen and his partner, Victor Miller, kidnapped Mary from a Tulsa mall on August 31st, 1999. They brought her to a quarry in Arasso where they encountered the quarry owner, Gerald Thurman. Miller shot Mr. Thurman, and then Hansen took Mary from the car and shot her to death as she lay in a ditch. We'll talk about the case against Hansen, his trial, direct appeal, and post-conviction claims, and the life sentence in federal prison that may prevent the state of Oklahoma from carrying out his sentence. Until then, have a great two weeks and stay safe. Good night. Mm -hmm.